0: Welcome to Definitely a Board Game Podcast, a podcast definitely about board games, except when it isn't. I'm your host, Royce Calverly, and my guests today are Daniel Newman and Tony Miller. Both Daniel and Tony are published designers, as well as founders, owners, and operators of the game production company, New Mill Industries. A short, incomplete list of their design credits includes Rolled West, Watch, Reapers, and London Necropolis for Daniel, and Kabuto Sumo, Fire in the Library, and Rivet Heads for Tony. As New Mill Industries, they've run five successful Kickstarter campaigns and published five games, with a sixth just funded a few days ago. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks, Royce.
1: Good to be here. (laughs) Thanks for having us.
0: Now, as you know, I've stalked you for years. I know everything about you, but just for uh, the sake of our listeners, how about we do a quick introduction? Tell me a little bit about yourself, maybe how you got into the gaming industry, whatever you want to talk about. Tony, do you want to go first? Sure. Why not? It seems I may
1: be uh, nominated for such things. (laughs) No, that's fine. Talking is what I like to do, just not always about myself. Um, So, uh, how I got into gaming? Um, I've kind of always been into gaming. Uh, I started gaming when I was much, much younger um, with all of the old classics that everybody in the u.s grew up with back in the day um i played my copy of clue until my dad got bored of it and bought a copy of sleuth and then we played it until you could no longer read the cards um so uh i you know risk and all of that wonderful stuff uh i encountered role-playing games when i got into the army um i got into a Series of books uh, that you may have heard of called A Song of Ice and Fire by George R. (laughs) R. Martin. And found out that there was a collectible card game based on said uh, series of books and got pretty heavily into that for a while. And then uh, role-playing games and collectible card games, that one in specific, ended up bringing me to the world of board games. Because we had to do something when, as adults, we couldn't get enough people around the table to actually role-play And um, board games is what it became, and at that point I just kind of jumped into hobby board gaming with both feet. First playing, then eventually trying my hand at designing, and now um,
0: publishing as well. Excellent. Do you still do any role-playing, or have you switched entirely to board gaming at this point?
1: Um, I would role-play if I had the time. Um, It's one of the curses of being an adult. Uh, is is time management becomes a thing that role-playing games don't often fit into if you're also trying to engage in other hobbies. Um, my wife is in a 5th uh, edition campaign every week, and um, that started roughly about the time that my son was born. And so she role-plays, and I uh, hang out with the little dude while she does that, and then she covers for me doing uh, board gaming and various things of that nature. So, fair
0: enough. Daniel, how about you?
2: Um, similar to Tony uh, in, in the beginning, right? Like, playing all the family games and stuff. I, I have a distinct memory of when I was probably four or five years old of my, my parents being uh, up late with their friends playing trivial Pursuit and me insisting that I knew the answers. Uh, <laughs> at, like, Are we five. the same person? We might be. <laughs> And I remember, I there was one that I answered, and everybody at the table was shocked. Um, so that was like my earliest memory. But I also uh, I used to play games, you know, you know, the standard Monopoly, Clue, whatever. But I also find other weird board games uh, and just play them by myself because people wouldn't weren't interested. So like I was doing that a lot as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I dabbled with role playing, but I never quite found the group uh, to actually play them. So I remember reading a lot of source books like uh paranoia and rifts like i would just sit and read them and maybe create characters and then never play um that's a
0: big part of a lot of that actually yes
2: (laughs) yeah that's what i've learned um it's funny my son is really into role-playing way more than board games but he likes to dm so he's always able to get games going because he's the one running them right Mm -hmm. um and he plays with his cousins and stuff. But, yeah, so, you know, I I played stuff. My wife and I would play Star Wars Monopoly and, like, the Buffy board game mm-hmm. in college because we just wanted something to do together uh, that wasn't sitting in front of the TV. And then when we moved to New York, uh, I discovered Settler's Catan, and then it was all uphill or downhill from there, depending <laughs> on how you look at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I dove pretty deep into Euros at that point. Excellent. That's, that's it. That's where I've been.
0: So Euros is your
2: your dream area that's where you love to play i love euros i, I love trick-taking games yep. and yep. like weird dexterity and abstracts there's kind of that's yeah um, that's me
0: so everything but ameritrash basically
2: is. i mean yeah there's a lot of stuff
1: i don't like but uh, uh yeah i overlap a lot with daniel um i grew up on spades and okay. various and euchre and various other trick-taking games especially in high school Um, That was something that we played a lot of while sitting around amongst the cornfields, bored out of our minds. And uh, I love dexterity games. Uh, I love uh, a lot of Euro games. Um, I've never met a Euro game that is too complex for me to uh, play, um, there are some that are a little bit too complex for me to enjoy necessarily, mm-hmm. but I've, ne- I've I've always um, I always want to try as many new things as I can. So I'm probably as close to an omni gamer as possible. I have interests and and tastes, but a lot of them are more theme based than anything else. Like right. uh, I love Android Netrunner. That is not a euro game by any stretch of the imagination. Like I love card games of that nature with all of the like crazy combos and various things you can do. That's the, the CCG-er in me mm-hmm. from way back in the day. I still I absolutely love all of that stuff. And anything that gives me a little bit of a taste of that is something that I'm into.
0: Very cool. Excellent. So, I mean, yeah, you learned all about your board game history, but everybody asks you about your board game history. Is there anything you want to tell people about yourself that isn't board game related? Hmm. Huh.
1: Isn't board game
0: related?
2: You um, really threw us a curveball there, Royce.
0: Yeah, I know, I right? This, you got to be tired of answering the same questions over and over.
2: So. No, it's true. That's not one of my favorite questions in podcasts. It does. You're right. Like everybody asks that, and like, is that even interesting? I don't know. Um, I mean, I am a professional model maker. Like okay. I make architectural models, um, and I was talking before we got going that I've spent like the last week just sanding by hand. 3D-printed parts to get, like, the lines off <laughs> oh, of it. Geez. And that's all I've done for, like, yeah. the last four days. Uh, and my hands are sore. But it's the best job, not the sanding, but, like, working as a model maker is the best job I've ever had in my life. And I've had a lot of different jobs. Uh, and I get a lot out of that. So that's... There's a little little non-board game information all about right, me. So I
0: kind of have to know, then, how do you get into something like that? Like that,
2: So I went to school for architecture. Okay. I went to grad school all for right. architecture. Um, and one of my first jobs after graduating uh was working for an architect and he needed a model made for some exhibit or something and um there was nobody else around to do it the guy he normally had doing it wasn't available so he was like why don't you see if you can figure out how to do it so it was like me working with this tiny table saw and uh and some really thin wood and i was i i made it and i was like oh this is super cool and then i wound up talking to somebody here's another tidbit i used to play roller derby (laughs) i'll let that sit for a sec (laughs) but somebody i knew from roller derby worked for this place i'm working for now and they're like oh i think they're actually looking for somebody so she hooked me up with them and i showed them this model that i did and they brought me in and they taught me all this extra stuff and it's kind of (laughs) so it's just the crazy thing about new york is like you you find opportunities from people you've met through weird things and like stuff just comes together
0: it's amazing when I hear about a job that I never really thought about existing. Even, yeah, and it's just it's such a neat idea.
2: It's pretty niche. There's only like a couple model shops in the city. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's super fun.
0: Do you ever get into like tabletop gaming, like a Warhammer 40k or anything like that, where you get to build the terrain? And...
2: Oddly, no. Like that kind of the worst Warhammer stuff. Like I'm not, I'm not really that into. Um, I did read like the the Horus rising series or yep. whatever mm-hmm. um which i thought were really fun but yeah no real interest in playing that game you do you do
1: really cool model stuff though and all the time looking yeah, at yeah. different systems and stuff like that wooden models and paper models and all sorts of just random stuff like that that's really yeah cool. i
2: mean that's how like i wasn't working during the pandemic and i was just feeling i needed to keep my hands busy or i'd go crazy so i was ordering all these like model kits and stuff and like paint my numbers and mm-hmm. There's this company U Gears that makes these laser-cut wood models that are like almost like puzzles that take hours, like 15 hours to put together. Oh wow! So I would just buy whatever would take me the longest, <laughs> so I could and I could spread it out over a couple of days, like because I needed to be busier, I would just go nuts. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of paper craft stuff. My house is filled with things I built over the pandemic. <laughs> but I'm working again now, so I'm I'm much happier.
0: Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Tony? Anything non-board game related you want to tell us?
1: Um, well, let's see. I, uh, so my day job is, is, um, both less and more exciting than Daniel's. Um, I haven't spent 25 hours sanding, but, uh, I do, uh, remote IT, I call it IT firefighter work. Um, basically once anything goes wrong, somebody rings the bell and then I have to show up and put out the fire. Um, I've been doing that for, like, the last 15 years or so. Um, And uh, I got into that, and and it's funny, Daniel talks about just randomly running into people. Um, One of the uh, people from my wife's D&D group when we lived in Virginia, her husband had started working at this place and was like, hey, I know that, you know, the whole uh, government security clearance stuff – is really stressful for you. I I got out of the army and decided I was going to try doing government contractor work. And I hated being unemployed half the year. Right. Um, (laughs) And so uh, she was like, you know, it doesn't pay quite as much, but have you ever gone into it? Like, you know, about computers and stuff like that, you could do this. So he got me a job and I've been doing it ever since. Um, He's since left the field um, and I'm still doing it. But, um, but yeah, it's uh, been, Just kind of uh, what I jumped into after all of my forays into military intelligence stuff uh, ended up not panning out just because of logistics and Mm -hmm. uh, government contracts and all that other wonderful, fun stuff that comes along with it. I've always kind of had that situation where I love whatever I'm doing in my job and then all of the stuff around it is a headache. Um, And uh, that's... Kind of one of the best things about uh, about New Mill in general. Both it gave me something to do in the pandemic. Um, I didn't have, I don't have the um, skill with models that Daniel does, but it also gave me somebody who was willing to do all of that annoying stuff, so I could just do the
0: fun <laughs> part of the job.
1: And I thought I was doing it Worked fun. out pretty well.
0: This is like a match made in heaven. You both think that you do, you're you doing the fun half of the job. <laughs> just... No, it's
2: great. It really hey, just works out.
0: Yeah. Hey,
1: if everybody comes out a winner, then that's the best you
0: can hope for. That's fantastic. All right. I suppose we should move on and talk about some board games. It is a board game podcast. So let's go ahead and jump on to Quick Thoughts. All right. Welcome to Quick Thoughts. So this is where we'll each talk basically just about a game that we've been playing recently or, you know, anything really. Any, if it's a game you hate, game you love, whatever you want to talk about. Anybody feel like going first? Uh,
2: well, I just got back from uh, Essen. What is that, two weeks ago? Yeah, about that. I, I don't remember what time is anymore. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I got to play a bunch of cool stuff and brought home a bunch of cool stuff. And, and one of my favorite finds is this game called Duos. Yep. Um, which is kind of like a better code name's pictures, um, which is not usually the kind of thing that I would be getting excited about, but it's this game. And like everybody I've introduced this game to has like loved it. Like it's just this cool, um, it's like a how do, you, how do you even describe it? So you've got a grid of four by three, 12 pictures. And you have everybody has a little privacy screen and you're you're making connections between two pictures at a time. like four couples of pictures out of those 12. And then everybody else has to guess which connections you made. So it could be like a bumblebee and a uh, if it's all animals, like a bumblebee and an ant. That'd be like a frog and a fish. And like you're just making the connections. And then everybody checks to see. I'm not doing a great job describing how (laughs) fun this game is. It's really more of a visual thing. But it always winds up, like, you show, like, how, why you were thinking certain things. And everybody's like, oh, well, I was connecting those two. I thought that was it. And then it becomes this interesting conversation, actually. Oh, neat. Um, yeah. So, anyway.
0: So, when you say to connecting, us. like, if you took Frog and Fish, what would the connection sort of be? What kind of thing are you looking for here?
2: So I mean it's whatever whatever strikes your fancy, right? It's like, "Oh, well these two both are in the water, right? And then everything else has four legs." I don't know. Like it just depends on what else is there. You're just like you're trying to make pairs of things.
0: Um, so the goal is to make a pair that excludes any other possible pair for those two, I or guess. Or just that feel
2: like a strong yeah. a strong bond yeah. between those two,
0: right? Neat. Do you know who the designer was by any chance?
2: Uh got it right here. <laughs> designer is uh, Nicholas Gestrin and Marcus Tangring. It's uh, published by Grana Games, Hmm. Uh, and it's Duos, D-U-O-S.
0: I don't think I've heard of either one of them before. Have they published anything else to your knowledge? I don't know. I mean,
2: they're not familiar names to me either. Um, And Grana, I don't know if I... I feel like I've heard their name before, the publisher. Um, but I couldn't tell you I what else. I think so, done. but
0: I think they're European only. So that they are. That's probably.
2: one of the reasons I picked it up was cause yeah. I. I was only trying to bring back stuff that I knew I couldn't get easily here. Yeah. Because um, suitcase space was definitely a luxury. That,
0: feel, um, that feels like a Spiel level uh, award winner, yeah. possibly. Yeah.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. It's definitely in that like you know, just one was kind of my go-to for a long time sure. with like mixed groups, and now I think this is the game they're going to be. I'm going to be taking along. Very cool. so it plays up to like six or something too, which is pretty cool. Excellent. All right, so that was Duos by Grana Games.
0: Tony, you got a game you want to talk about? Sure. Um, probably my most
1: uh, common gaming partner these days is my son. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we play a lot of games that uh, the two of us can play together. That usually ends up being um, relatively simple games or co-ops or games that are both and probably the biggest hit we have is uh Zombie Kids Evolution from uh, Scorpion Masque. Mm-hmm. Um it's been really really fun to watch as he's gotten more and more into the strategy. It's a it's a game that kind of evolves with your kids. Um it, it is like a, um, almost like a legacy game and that you open envelopes and it changes the rules of the game to make it a little bit more complicated as you play. Um, I won't give any spoilers specifically, but, um, it's been really fun to watch. Like the initial time that we played was, you know, he was still struggling with following rules in a game. He wanted to make up the rules of the game. Um, my son is a... A born board game designer. He's never met a box of components that he doesn't know how to play better than whatever was written in the rule book. Um, but. With this, like, it's like, okay, these are the rules and we're going to play this way. Okay, no, now it's going to change. And the idea that it changed was really exciting for him. And now like he's coming up with strategies on his own and planning on the fly and trying to um, set up other people for successful actions and everything. And it's just been a, just a blast to play. Um, we started playing again when we moved into the new house that we're in about a month ago. Um, because it was something that we knew how to play and we were all exhausted from unpacking everything. And, um, it's been cool to jump back into it now with him being older and us having fresh eyes on it. Um, we're—he's—he's uh, he's made it his quest to finish it as quickly as possible because we also have Zombie Teens Evolution, which is kind of like a spiritual successor mm-hmm. uh, with similar mechanisms, and he wants to get to that. But he has to get through all the envelopes in this one first. He will not let himself try the other game until
0: he has—he uh, has conquered this one. So um, he has a lot more self-control than I do. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is it like a is zombie teens a more difficult version just to sort of grow with the, your child or
1: um i think it's 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 a bit of an evolution of the same idea i don't know that it's more complicated um it zooms out a little more in scope in zombie kids you're just kind of like defending a school and in zombie teens you're running around a whole town like trying to find a way to cure uh, the zombie plague in general, so it's got this like larger scope right. of the story, and it it's um, more of a um, it's less of an immediate threat, as it were. Like you're still dealing with the zombies and everything, but there's a larger goal in mind. And so, I think that from that perspective, it definitely evolves. Uh, with your kids. I don't know if the initial mechanisms are more complicated. I've heard that it does get more complicated over time as you unlock additional envelopes and sure, everything yeah. than Zombie Kids does when everything's open. But um, I haven't had a chance to play it yet because my son... Fair enough, me. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's neat that's interesting there's two games that i know nothing about i guess this one at least meets my canadian content for the day uh, scorpion mask is based out of montreal so yeah.
1: yeah the um the designer um and it's i believe her name is french so i will try my best but it's uh Anik lobet or Lobet. um she appears to have designed a whole bunch of games, including some stuff for Haba and various other uh, publishers around the world. Um, so she's she's done quite a few things, and these are uh, uh, if if these are any indication, then everything else she's designed is probably fantastic too. Excellent. So I'm planning on lo- on seeking it out.
2: So- Speaking of Scorpion Masque, another really cool game I played at Essen, which I did not bring back, is Touring Machine. I don't know if you've seen anything about Touring Machine. I've seen it, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it, I played a demo of it, and it was super, super good. And I'm, I'm just hoping it's going to be easier to get locally.
0: Yeah. The sad part is, even though it's a Canadian publisher, I'm still not going to get it before you guys, so... <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I'm excited for that one for sure. It looks really yeah. interesting. Yeah,
2: that's really good.
0: Uh, that one and Cat in the Box is another one with sort of oh. a similar kind of theme. Cat in the Box about. is
2: exquisite. It's so good. <laughs> one of my favorite trick-taking games of all time. Oh, excellent! Oh, it's amazing. Yes. Yeah,
0: and now I just have to wait for that to come to Canada too. <laughs>
2: there
1: you go. Oh, it's so good. I um, I picked up the um, Bezier Games American release um, because I was not hip enough to get in on the original Japanese editions of things. Um, I'm not as cool as my, uh, hipster counterpart from book, but, um, but, I
2: know, I know people who make uh, orders of Japanese games. Uh,
1: I know these same people. I just never have money when they're placing. <laughs> that's gaming,
2: so right. Maybe
1: it's, maybe it's because of slay the spire. Maybe that's,
2: yeah. I'll, if you'd only spent all your money on weird Japanese trick taking games, Tony,
1: that would be the, that would be the right answer. Um, I'm starting to suspect that you may have me there, but uh, but yeah, Cat in the Box is
0: fantastic. It's so good. Excellent. So the game I wanted to talk about today is one that I got, interestingly enough, because it was cheap. Uh, <laughs> it was actually part of a Kickstarter group buy, and you could get both this one and the follow-up sequel for less than half the price of the new one. Have either of you played Almanac the Dragon Road by Scott Alms? No, no I
2: haven't even heard of
0: it. No, actually. I hadn't heard of it either, and I bought it more or less because, well, it's the second successful Kickstarter, so there must be something there, and Scott Alms, mm-hmm. I don't like all his games, but he's done some stuff that I find interesting anyway. Yep. This one is mm-hmm. really, really weird. I guess that's where I should start. It almost feels a little like a Ryan Lockett game to some extent. Uh, it's a worker placement resource game, sort of. As far as that goes, it's fairly standard. What makes it... Interesting is you are literally on a caravan road. You're starting at the beginning, you end up at the end city, and you're always going to start here and here. But there's a book, and each page is a different area that you can travel to along the caravan. And at the end of each turn, you basically bid for who's going to be the guide, who chooses, like a choose-your-own-adventure style kind of thing, which area to go to next out of a few options. And then every area has a new set of rules that either completely change or slightly change the placement rules or give special bonuses for doing various things. So as you're traveling around, you're sort of playing a different game, similar but different game on each turn. And I think it's eight turns total, so eight different similar games. Mm. It's really interesting. It's not the kind of thing I would have normally gone for. It's a little bit lighter as far as a worker placement game goes than I generally like. But that map book, that guide role, that just surprise is just a lot of fun. And the narrative is so strong in this. That's why I said it kind of reminded me of a Locket game. That narrative <laughs> is sort of driving the entire game, which I really, really enjoyed. I don't know. Uh, my only concern with it, I guess, would be replayability. Uh, I don't know, once you've seen all the maps, is it
2: still going to be fun to play? Is it still going to be as interesting? But do, do you need to play it again after? Like, I'm very down on this idea of replayability. Like, I think some games are just meant to be played a handful of times, and then you've had that experience, and you move on to the next one, right? Like, I feel like there's a big... That's just, I don't know, it's a talking point to me, and the idea it's a good, of replayability. It's a good talking
0: point, I have to admit, because i face it, most of my games only get played a half dozen times max anyway, so why do right. I care about it? Yeah.
2: Right. So Didn't mean to jump on No, no, there, it's a, absolutely it's a, a good point, and it's
0: one that I have wondered about in the past. <laughs> This yeah. idea of replayability, I mean, well, I
1: guess yeah, it's How just... many times do you rewatch a movie? I mean, there are some movies you may have seen 10, 20 times, but right. how many did you see once in theaters and then never watch again? But right. you still carry that experience
0: with you. Still I... worth
2: the 16 bucks or whatever it was. To... Yeah, ah, Movies are expensive now. Yeah, I was just going to say, I can just <laughs> right. get a
0: board game instead, and I'm happier yeah. that way. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Specifically importing Japanese board games, <laughs> Japanese trick-taking board games, I hear, is the solution.
2: <laughs> Those get well. No, they don't even get played that much. Nothing gets played that much.
1: Not enough. No, definitely
2: not. But you're paying for the unique experience, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm, you have this thing that you're not going to be able to do otherwise, and the cost is the cost. So,
0: okay, well, let me Uh, reword the replayability concern then in a different way. This is a game where if I play it with a different group, my knowledge may allow me to direct the game in a different way. Is that a concern or a bigger concern than replayability, perhaps?
1: I guess it depends on whether or not the um, new direction is a novel one. I mean, they're experiencing it for the first time, so for them it will be whatever it is. For you, it could be a different experience. And I guess that's, you know, you won't know until you actually try to take that plunge, whether or not it strays farther and how broad the experience is as opposed to how deep it is.
0: Right, yeah. I'm just wondering from a competitive point of view, if I know that if I go this way, it's better for the strategy i'm currently working on <laughs> i may mm-hmm. bid more during the guide phase to become the guide to do that yeah
2: yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah i think um, so one of the the games that i absolutely loved uh, that i played a while back was uh, charterstone yep. and i played it with one group and we played through the entire thing and i can see playing it a second time knowing how everything's going to go and how things unlock like there could be some degeneracy in strategies and and min maxing and exploiting that you could do um knowing some of the twists and turns that are around the corner and at the same time like I had such a fantastic experience playing that game with that group of people that I don't know that I ever need to play the game again. Not that it wasn't, like, a wonderful experience, but, like, I still talk about it to this day, and it's been, like, that was a year pre-pandemic that I
2: finished that game, you know? That that was going to be my question, is, like, what's the likelihood that you would play it again with another group? Like, because it's, like, 12 games, 10 or 12 games, right?
0: And it is a game that seems to be very group-dependent, because... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I
2: I played it with my wife, and we were very kind of meh on it. Yeah,
0: unfortunately, so were we, but yeah. 2 players seems to be not the way to play it, I'll say that for sure. I, I will
1: agree. I, I will definitely agree with that. Um, I played it with uh, T and uh, T's husband, Steve, and then um, one of their friends who they introduced me to, who's a fantastic gaming partner and uh yeah it was absolutely wonderful from start to finish but like i could play go fish with t and steve i think and And have have a good time time. so you know it it is very group dependent and i think uh in this regards it was a really good group to choose to do it with so excellent.
2: I will say it was a great source of prototyping components though. Like, that is absolutely. <laughs> I've used Charterstone bits in so many games.
1: I've actually looked at the um the cost of the
0: refill packs,
2: oh yes,
1: potential uh potentially to see if they're cheaper
0: than buying prototyping like the bits on their own, yeah. I, I, I just love the way you guys think. It's so completely outside <laughs> of my area. Just that's so cool. It was the but one it,
2: reason I agreed to play Pandemic Legacy was that I said I yep. want stuff at the end. Yep, I'll play, <laughs> but I want all the bits when we're done.
1: I was interested in playing as well, but I will admit the content was really good. Um, That was one of the reasons why I was really excited to see uh, Eclipse second edition, mm -hmm. Um, because now first edition gave me a whole bunch of spaceships and cubes and various other things that I could use in other things as well.
0: Um, So we should expect a space based game coming out from you next is what you're saying.
1: (laughs) I don't know if I would say that, but those cubes have been in multiple prototypes at this point, including a lot of the early demo uh, ideas for fire in the library. So, Mm. (laughs) uh, so, yeah, like that, that. Eclipse was the progenitor of a lot of games in my design wheelhouse. Um. Excellent.
0: (laughs) All right. So anyway, that was Almanac, the track and road. What? Is that what that was? Uh, That's by Colossal Games and Scott Alms. Uh, It was published Mm -hmm. in 2020. And if you're interested, it has a sequel called The Crystal Peaks that was Mm -hmm. published just last year or so. Yeah. And I haven't even unwrapped it yet, so I have no idea what the sequel does differently, but it'll be interesting. Alright, so those were our quick thoughts. We had Duos, we had Zombie Kids, and we had Almanac, The Dragon Road. Let's move on to news. Alright, so, when I saw this in the news, it appealed to me personally from my wheelhouse, which is more of a legal viewpoint than anything else, but I'm really curious to see how you guys react as both designers and as publishers. Did you hear about uh, Connor Wake and Andrew Kulpik, uh, Flowering Heights and Towering Perfection?
1: Absolutely. Uh,
0: So just a quick history for anyone who doesn't know about it. Basically, uh, Andrew Kulpik launched a Kickstarter campaign for a game called Towering Perfection. Uh, Perfection, it turns out, was a near-perfect mechanical match completely different theme, but mechanical match to an unpublished game called Flowering Heights uh, from Connor Wake. Connor went on Twitter, went everywhere, sort of claimed that Andrew had stolen his design. Initially, people were sort of, okay, well, you know, the divergent, or sorry, convergent design does happen. People in different areas design games that are very, very similar. But then it came out that Andrew was actually a play tester for flowering heights prior to his designing of towering perfection. So uh-huh. it was a bit of a unique situation where he had access to the unpublished game prior to the publication. Uh, to date, as far as I know, Andrew has not yet admitted to copying the game, but he has pulled the Kickstarter campaign. He said he will relaunch in the future, but there's no more detail on that. So, as designers, as publishers, what are your first thoughts when you hear about something like this? What how does this affect the industry?
2: Do you want to go first, Daniel? Or um I mean it's these kind of instances happen so rarely. Um it, it's not a widespread problem. It it feels like this guy got caught. He back down. I wouldn't expect to see it again, um,
1: unless there's going to be some conversation between the two to bring it out together, um, which I don't expect. But no, that would be an amicable potential resolution um, that could happen.
2: Like I don't, the, I don't the... expect it though. I think the biggest fallout from this, especially it being public the way it was, is that some designers may get a little more reticent to playtest, which is a bad thing. Um, mm-hmm. You shouldn't be afraid to get your game out because somebody's going to steal it because it just doesn't happen.
1: And and I would say that this is proof that playtesting is actually a buffer against the this more sort eyes, of thing yeah. happening. Like... The fact that this was a known game, like other designers are the ones who brought it to his attention that this mm-hmm. game was on Kickstarter. Like he didn't initially see it. Other people who had play tested the game and were aware that he had designed it like, uh, hey, went to him and said, is, hey, did you see that this is basically your game? And he went... Oh, wait. And then he did some more investigation. And initially he was very quiet on it and hesitant to say anything. Right. He didn't know what the legal ramifications of saying anything would be because, of course, the specific mechanisms of a game can't really be protected. Right. Um, Under intellectual property law, Um, like he could copy his he he could protect his rule book or his specific written implementation of it. But if the other guy used different words to describe the exact same process, there was not much recourse he could do. So playtesting with other people and having the public knowledgeable about things that you are working on, it's not only good marketing but it's also good defense specifically against things like this like had other people not been aware that connor was working on this game had other people not right. play tested it in the past and been able to be like yeah absolutely i play tested this with connor at such and such time or i was actually in the game that andrew <laughs> play tested it in like yeah. those kinds of things like acted as a buffer so it's a shame that it happened it doesn't happen very often but um the very act of playtesting it publicly and speaking about it publicly um acted as more of a protection for theft of his ideas than it was a hindrance and i think that's what i hope designers take away from it um in the future is that this kind of thing is exactly uh is it's another reason beyond actually testing the mechanisms of your game
0: right right uh-huh. yeah it's oh, the first advice everybody always gets is don't worry about NDAs don't worry about keeping your idea uh-huh. secret just put it out there right. let everybody know what you're doing but I can see where people are starting to get a little more gun-shy about that again, where this mm-hmm. idea... And it does seem to be happening more often than it used to. Like I, I can think of a few times in the last couple of years in China where it happened for sure. There was mm-hmm. another big Kickstarter campaign. Unfortunately, the name of it is leaping out of my brain. It was a, mu- a miniature-based campaign. I think it was set in Egypt mm-hmm. or something like that, that had a mm-hmm. similar thing mm-hmm. happen about a year ago.
1: Yeah. There
0: was also the
1: reskin of TikTok
0: Woodsman. That's what I was oh, that yeah, was yeah, put up. Yeah, gem, that was gem, gemstone a, um, bling or whatever the original or the, is that the new yeah. version? Yeah.
1: No, uh the new one was something involving bamboo and pandas, but yeah. uh the the English rights holder had lost the rights and decided they wanted to continue publishing it and so reskinned and rethemed the game and put it up on Kickstarter again and 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 that, that was,
2: was from a fairly well. large publisher, too. That yes, was, yes. That was what was surprising. It was like, they knew better mm-hmm. than we're trying to, like... And, and again, the something. outcry
1: from the design community was enough for them to pull it down and yep. say, and, and, you know, this isn't going to fund because you all know each other. Like,
2: right. Right. The, one the of the... The community's too small to pull <laughs> yes. shady stuff. Like, that's really what it is.
0: It, um that's it that I find that in and of itself very interesting that the community is almost self-governing in this way. Because you're mm-hmm. right, legally you I don't know anywhere in the world that lets you trademark an actual no. game mechanism. Nope. So it really does rely on almost a shame factor <laughs> to <laughs> self-balance. Yeah, is there not a danger in that as well? Where what happens when somebody starts shaming people who aren't necessarily deserving of it? and we have a bit of a personality conflict that happens, is that a potential problem here when, as we become more connected that way? I don't know. I, I don't know that the
1: uh, profit margins in board games are incentive enough to attempt such a thing. Um, you know, it's one thing if you can take a mechanism for a game that you know works and put it up on Kickstarter with a, a skin and a theme that people genuine, generally like um, and watch it succeed and, and you know, do all of that. But as a publisher, the amount of effort that goes into publishing a game versus the amount of return that you get for it makes... It doesn't incentivize that. Right. Like, it would have to be a lone wolf operator, like, trying to do this and then taking all the money for themselves. And I don't... Um, I mean, maybe I'm uh, very naive in some regards, but I haven't experienced a lot of the scamming behavior inside of the community. Like, I'm not wary of Kickstarter. I vet the projects that I back. Like, you know, that polices itself. I feel this is kind of the same thing. I think there could be... Uh, you know, a falling out between co-designers that could potentially result in something like this. But even then, the fallout uh, itself would probably generate two different games with similar ideas right. rather than identical uh, identical things. Um, so I don't know if it's anything to worry about. It's something to watch out for. Like, as a designer, I'm always looking at the various games that I see or that come across my screen and seeing if they're similar to anything that I'm working on or anything that I know anybody else is working on. Um, Because as you said, sometimes parallel design happens. Like, people come up with the same idea. Um, You know, when Kabuto Sumo was first coming out, there were questions about whether or not I had ever played the uh, prototype for Red Cap Ruckus. And it just so happens I never had. I hadn't seen the game. The designer um, is... uh, An individual in the Game Designers of North Carolina and all the other game designers in North Carolina were like, hey, this is kind of similar to something that one of our people is working on. You know, are you at all affiliated with this? And so we like actually got on a phone call and had a conversation about like what was different, how it was different. And we basically made exactly opposite design decisions in almost every regard. Um, as to how the game was played like his game is played for points my game is played to a sudden end we had immediately discarded the opposite way of doing things (laughs) because of the way the audiences that we were designing for so while they shared a mechanism they were very different but uh, you know that's a an in real time example of like this is a game that's similar to yours maybe you should talk to the designer and make sure everything's on the up and up and you know It's a small community, and so that kind of stuff happens pretty regularly. Mm -hmm. Um, Or I'll get an idea, and I'll go on Twitter and say, hey, has anybody designed a game doing X, Y, and Z? Because I'm unaware of one. And then... You know, sometimes I get people, oh yeah, that's this game, and then I just go and buy that game, and then other times it's, no, nobody's ever done that before, and then I'll like track it down, and there's often times where I'll have ideas like that, and I'll be like, okay, I have no idea what to do with this one, but I would like to see it exist in the world here, design community, have this nugget, and do whatever you will with it. Um And that happens a lot too. Designers who aren't sure exactly what direction to take things in, but are interesting. It's an interesting thing or an interesting observation, and they just kind of hand it off to other people.
0: So I I find it interesting you were able to get onto that phone call and say, okay, where do we meet? Where are we different? And sort of almost said on a percentage, okay, this much of the game is the same. If we're going to start setting percentages like that, where do we draw that line? I mean, take something like Ark Nova, which clearly has terraforming Mars elements in it. I mean, when I the first time I taught it to a group, they were like, Oh, I know how to do this. It's the same as terraforming Mars. And they immediately started playing out their cards. I, where do we draw that point? At what point is there enough sufficiently different?
2: I mean... Uh- Dead Man's Cabal borrows from Trajan. Mm -hmm. Watch borrows from Kanban. Like, I I think it's totally fine to, like, take a mechanism as a jumping-off point, but if you're creating a totally different experience, then it's a non-issue, you know? Like, a lot of games build on each other. Euros uh, pull from the same pool of mechanisms, essentially, and then it's just evolving them. So... I don't know if you can break it down to, like, oh, well, once you get to 65%, it's not an original idea anymore, you know? I think it's it's got to be more organic than that. The thing with this, the, this news story is, like, the guy had screenshots of the other dude in his playtest right. group. So, like, he can't even claim that it was a parallel design because... There's evidence of the dude playing and, that game, and
1: and he played it online in a platform that involves you having to actually have the files for said game on your system to oh. play it. And so, like, he literally had access to the whole tile list, right? You know, yeah. like, so, I mean, a comparison like that, like, it's easy enough to re. I say it's easy enough. It's not something I can do, but somebody who can do graphic design or art can reskin a game. Sure. and you see it all the time like there are homemade versions of love letter all over bgg mm-hmm. where people have created you know mario love letter because that's a thing that i want that isn't an official product as of yet
0: um give them time yep and, are
1: you yeah. sure <laughs> i think and as long as and as long as uh as, i think nintendo would have announced it everywhere but yeah. um as long as uh as long as You know, it's not being sold. Nobody really cares. It it just flies under the radar. It's like making a, like, I made a custom version of um, Old Maid for my son that was called uh, I Want Pictures of Spider Man where there were a whole bunch of bad, blurry, horrible pictures of Spider-Man <laughs> and one good one, and you were playing as J. Jonah Jameson. I was say, trying you to say, chose to play as J. Yeah, Jonah yeah. Jameson. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, your goal was to end up, well, it came from an inside joke with a reviewer. where He d- he said that that was the game experience that we were missing from the Spider-Man universe, was J. Jonah Jameson forever wanting a good picture of Spider-Man. That's um, funny. It was just, and I just made a copy for my son. Like, I can't release that to anyone. I don't have the Spider-Man license. You know, Old Maid is not anything that is going to, you know, set the world on fire. (laughs) It doesn't separate itself from Old Maid in any way other than you want to end up with the card with no match at the end of the game uh, rather than the opposite. And, you know, it's just a fun little thing that that I did. Um, But, you know... You could do things like investigate the actual content, like the actual, um, you know, what's written on all of the cards. Are they identical? Are the tiles identical mechanically? Like, there's a lot of investigation you could do. I just don't know how much incentive there is um, to to go to that extent. And as far as, like, how much is too much, like... uh, I don't want to use the um, age-old pornography defense of you know it, (laughs) it, it. but it's kind of that kind of still a feel, yeah, like. What am I doing in this game? What are the incentives in this game? What are the rewards in this game? Does it feel like the point totals match? Does it feel like the layout of things matches? Like, is the graphic design of a game is informed by the mechanisms of the game? And if the games look functionally identical, even if they don't look visually identical, that's usually apparent to most players. Yeah. Um yeah. I do like it though when a game gives me a vibe of another game that I'm fond of. Like I'm personally, I personally enjoy that experience of like, oh, so this is like such and such, and it lights up all the wonderful little heuristic parts of my brain that now have ideas of how these things connect to each other because there's a similar uh, experience prior to that. So as a gamer, like sometimes I really enjoy that. Like oh, this is like this plus this. That's exactly what I want right
0: now. Like
2: a quick start strategy guide almost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but there's other times where you get a game and you're like, "Wait, this is just this plus this." Right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "I already have this. Why do I need the yeah, So it's it's there's a fine line. Yeah. I think.
1: There is definitely a shoe for every foot in that regard.
0: Yeah. <laughs> just before we move on, I want to go back to something Daniel said earlier that the experience mm-hmm. is the important part if it feels different. And I'm just curious Take these two games, and yet we're not in any way saying Andrew is out and blameless here or even should continue with the project at all. But I think a game about sort of growing plants versus a game of stacking cats would have a very different play experience. One would be more of a calm, relaxing thing. The other would be more of a happy, fun sort of experience. Can the narrative be enough difference to make the game a different game?
2: Not for me, personally, because I often will just discard theme when I'm playing a game. Like, I theme does not influence me that much when I'm playing. Um, it's all about the mechanical experience. So I, I would see it as identical. I mean,
1: I guess is Star Wars Monopoly different enough from regular Monopoly for them to call it something other than Monopoly?
2: No, it's um, not. It's still Monopoly. You know, like, like, it doesn't like matter this, what's printed on the board. What, that's what kind your of, little, it's a little more interesting because it's Han Solo, but I also like the little Scotty dog, so, I mean, it's... You know,
1: well, like, to to offer a bit of a counterpoint, like, Clank and Clank in Space, I really enjoy both games, but I personally enjoy Clank in Space more, because all of the cards are references to nerdy things that I'm familiar with, and Clank is much more of a straight experience in a unique narrative world, um, so all those little Easter eggs and tidbits make me enjoy the game more, um... So, like, I'm not saying that theme has no impact, or that that that, that has no impact, but in a case of a designer, um, it's largely... I don't want to say it's largely cosmetic, because that acts like theme has nothing to do with it, but... Like in this case, the differences between the two games and how they're played were largely cosmetic. Yes. Um,
2: well, so even a closer example would be like mm-hmm. Century Spice Road versus Century Golem,
1: mm-hmm.
2: okay, right? Which is strictly a reskin. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't played both of those, but I can't imagine that the experience is that different.
0: I agree with you, but at the same time, I don't get as many import games as you do, obviously, but I did hunt down the EV version of Point Salad. I had no desire to play Mm -hmm. Point Salad, but the Eevee Mm -hmm. version appealed to me. I knew I'd be able to get it played. I knew it'd be... So it is a different experience for me than Point Salad would have been. And, you know, there's a question like
1: the internet is just tubes full of cats so it's putting a cat theme on something instantly better than a gardening theme even if even if plants and gardening and nature have been a really popular theme as of late yep. i can't really answer that question but that's the kind of thing that a publisher chooses it certainly worked for frank you know? west yeah yeah well, yeah i'm just saying yeah. i'm just saying that largely like You know, that's the kind of thing that the publisher chooses. Most designers, when they walk into a publisher with a game, don't get to keep the theme that the game originally had. There's a tweak to it in some way, or there's an alteration, and it's not always the case. Sometimes the pitch that the designer is making is exactly what the publisher is looking for, and they're signing up whole hog, and they want to enhance that theme and continue with that. And other publishers are literally, you know, the case of Point Salad is a really good one, like, I love the flat-out game screen. I think point, cl- point Salad is a super clever design. I think the theme of Point Salad was largely there to be inoffensive and because they like food. Right. Well, it's a joke. It's a Point right, Salad yeah. game. I, guess, like,
2: it's I get it's a pun. That. Like that's the whole I guess, point. that. I, I, yeah. I, I,
1: I get that, but I'm saying, like, for the average market, or the average gamer, like, in Walmart, who isn't going to know what point salad is, is I feel like
2: it's the weirdest name for something out of
1: (laughs) But, (laughs) but like, Eevees, I know what Pokemon are. I know they work. They evolve in every different direction. This makes perfect sense to me. And it lends itself a different, you know... Each one of the Love Letter games has a slight rules tweak mm-hmm. to how they behave, to separate them based on their individual theme. But it's a slight rules tweak until you get to, like, the Thanos one where it's, you know, two-on-one potentially as a different game. Um, most of them are very, like, minor changes to make the game feel more like the original theme.
0: Love Letter is an excellent example because I will play the Batman Love Letter over any oh of my the others every Best time. Best Love Letter, yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, that episode of the animated
1: series is maybe one of the best cartoons ever in the history of ever.
0: Um, I think you're talking about Almost God, ep- that was a separate game, actually.
1: Uh, maybe, yeah. yeah. I think you're right, now that you say that. But yeah, like, it's it's very much one of those things. Like, you grab the theme that appeals to you. You know, USAopoly has made an entire company based off of it. <laughs> sure. Not even counting Monopoly, like, the rising yeah. brand oh, yeah, that they have yeah. now. They have... Thanos Rising, Rising, the Batman Who Laughs Rising. They even have an Avatar: The Last Airbender Rising. If oh, that's more that your, one. I
0: knew there was a there was a yeah. Harry Potter one for sure, but I didn't know. Yeah, but, the,
1: yeah, yeah, the the Fire Nation Rising is their newest one, <laughs> and it's the first one that's made my son go, "Hey, I'm interested in this game," and he didn't even look at any of the other options. So, you know, it is it is one of those things. People connect to themes, so you know there is something to be said for that, um, but a lot of the time a theme is going to be injected by the publisher based on what they think will sell or what they think will be unoffensive or out of the way or you know, just in general the audience that they want to cater the product to. Most of the time the designer doesn't get to choose that, right. unfortunately.
0: I find that fascinating because when I, I love a game when the theme and the mechanics mesh so well together you can't tell what came first. And the idea that eh, it probably wasn't that theme to begin with, is that's really interesting to me.
2: I think all of my games have retained their themes, but I pick weird themes, and, I, and mm-hmm. I try to integrate stuff in. So, like part of the appeal is the odd theme to it yeah,
1: yeah you um, have you have quirky ideas. I'm in some uh, somewhat the same camp. Like I pitched Kabuto Sumo as a contest between Sumo Beatles, and that retained its theme all the way through and even was enhanced by the publishers and the developers who went, yes, more of this. let's right. let's add to this and make it more. More this, um, and you know it. It really depends on each individual product. So, fire
2: in the library was a. It it's still about a fire in a library, but they did tweak the uh, the theme a little bit, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. It was initially about the Library of Alexandria specifically, mm-hmm. and um, there were there just so happened to be two other games about the fire in the Library of <laughs> Alexandria that came time. out the same year, um, which is very entertaining. <laughs> Good um, word for and it. Publish- <laughs> yes. Um. Well, it's it's and none of the games share anything mechanically, right. which is probably all very different
2: favorite, games. My yeah. favorite
1: part of it, the entire experience is they're all three the same theme, but very different games looking at the same uh, historical event. And um, weird giraffe, my publisher decided that they didn't want to like wade in with the third. Fire of Alexandria game in the same year, and instead decided to tweak it a bit to make it more like the library in a magical university, which gave them some additional, like, design space that they could occupy with the various things that they wanted to put into the game and the various tweaks they wanted to make in the game and potential expansions going forward or connections to other games that they've designed, so... It was very much a question of what served them as well as what served the game. So it's still a fire in a library because that's the core conceit of the game. But the the minor details shifted to be more suitable to what they wanted and what served them.
0: I, I, there are things I'm getting out of this that I never expected to get out of this particular news story. This is really fantastic. Uh, But we're on track to be probably the longest episode yet, so we should probably leap ahead to our main event.
1: (laughs) That's kind of my thing.
0: (laughs) All right. Welcome to the main event. I feel like we've kind of been discussing this all the way along, but I thought it would be really interesting to have just a discussion about running a publishing company, starting a publishing company during the COVID period. Why you wanted to do this in the first place. Why anybody would want to do this in the first place, maybe. Uh, Where would you like to start? Shall we start with why? Why did you decide to start your own publishing company?
2: Why did we do it? Um, So... (laughs) tony and i both had a couple of games that we were shopping around to different publishers and we would get feedback that they really liked it but they couldn't find a spot in their line for it It didn't really fit and it was a little frustrating right because we thought we had these games that were like oh i think these would have an audience like i even knew a couple people who kept asking me about specific games Mm -hmm. when when is this going to get made and we both had some extra time on our hands because of the pandemic. was, about, we we're about six months in at that point, I think, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, roughly like the that summer after
2: and, the, you know, the lockdown started. Yeah,
1: and it became very clear that conventions, which both of us attended pretty heavily pre-pandemic, were not going to be a thing for a while. Right. Yeah,
2: yeah. So we just started talking about. It. I was like, well, and we had like kicked around the like, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be cool if we could just publish, or you know, our own like our friends' games and stuff. And we were like, mm-hmm. well hold on a second science and science society is like pretty much done the art and design can be pretty minimal like we could just try this and see what happens and like i could handle this part of it but i can't really do this other stuff and then tony was like well actually i could do that other stuff and i don't want to do the stuff (laughs) you're talking about it was like tony are we starting a company
1: yeah we so so we were talking about it and it's you know uh, uh, we've we've used the analogy before punk rock publishing, and it really is like looking at the garage bands that went, you know, we think our stuff is pretty cool, let's like press an album and sell it at our shows. Like, people seem to dig our music, why not give them something that they can take home? And um, we both had, a, a you know, at that point, both of us had been uh, signed, both of us had been published, like we had a, a track record, and mm-hmm. um, you know, people, you know, were starting to know who both of us were and then, you know, the world shut down and conventions are gone and there's the possibility that, you know, they won't be coming back for a while and, you know, playtest groups shut down or moved largely online which, playtesting online especially when what you're working on is a dexterity game is an exercise in futility. Um, You know, so there there were all sorts of hurdles that were suddenly in our way, like what do we do? Like, a large portion of what I did for fun was design games and work on games and play test games. And that wasn't available to us anymore. And so we were largely, I, I don't say sitting around doing nothing, but we were largely sitting around lamenting the fact that this wasn't something we could engage with anymore. Like it was just kind of gone. And As Daniel said, we both had some designs that had been pitched around and people had looked at them and went, these are pretty good, but I, you know, either don't have room in my schedule or I can't publish them because the theme is too weird or, you know, who really wants a two-player asymmetric game, which is hilarious given the takeoff of two-player games during the pandemic. But like, pre-pandemic, everybody wanted four- and five-player games. That's what every publisher was looking for, Um, you know, so those were all conversations that were circulating around with us. And it was just like, how do we stay relevant with this? And so we were thinking about other designers we knew it's like, well, this person has these games and this person has this game and this person has this game. And we're aware of all of these games that are like, we like them. They're basically ready. Mm -hmm. Like maybe we put them out. And you know, a lot of the punk rock bands who publish their own, tracks who publish their own cds and you know burn them all and sell them at their merch table that doesn't prevent them from getting a record contract later Mm -hmm. you know most of them have an ep that is what got people's attention in the first place and then they go on to sign like so what if we used that as our model like the diy we build it in our garage and you know people pick it up and we you know try to gain some word of mouth both for ourselves and others and Mm -hmm. so that's kind of where we went with it. And and the initial conversations were, you know, I personally, uh, am the exact opposite of crafty. Um, (laughs) building, building things is not something that I am very adept with. Um, it makes me mad inside my head most of the time. Um, and so, you know, the graphic design and the artwork and things of that nature were things that I couldn't do. Like I would have to have other people do that realistically, but things like, you know, writing rule books I had experience with editing rule books. I had experience with playtesting games. I have experience with, um, I love like stickering things and sorting things (laughs) and putting things in bags. That's good because there's
2: a lot of that coming your way. Yeah, I know. I'm just saying,
1: saying, like (laughs) the first thing I do with the game, I don't have any games in shrink wrap because the first thing I do is open it up and treat myself to the punching of all of the bits and bagging of everything. You know, I bring out my bag of bags that every serious gamer has and find just the right bags to separate the different player pieces so i can you know like i love that and being a publisher has let me engage in that in a whole new way like (laughs) you mean i get to assemble the stuff for a thousand copies of this game that's amazing
2: um so that that brings us actually to the next the next conversation we had when we were uh talking about starting a company was that i I don't know if this was as the shipping situation got bad or if we just kind of saw it coming potentially, mm-hmm. but we decided we didn't want to print things in China and deal with right. the freight and all of that headache and warehousing and all of that. So we're like, well, how can we do this with like the least amount of hassle for us? Um, and we, we started looking at um, like print-on-demand vendors which would allow us to do smaller print runs that cost more per copy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but our goal was never to make a bunch of money with it. We're not looking to, you know, a lot of publishers will do a thousand copy print run or, or more. Um, but their unit cost is so low that even if they only sell half their copies, they're not screwed. Right. Right. We don't do that. If our Kickstarter, if we get 350 copies backed, we'll print, 380 400 um because we have to we're, you know our unit cost is like 15 to 20 dollars and we're selling them for 30 which is like stupid right margins if you talk to any publisher they'll like start gasping and coughing they're like what are you doing and then i explain what we're doing they're like oh yeah okay
1: this is a side gig we're not trying right. to make a ton of money off of this and, and i've I had,
2: had conversations with a couple of publishers who were like oh I, you know we can we can partner with you and, and let you get a larger print run so it's going to cost you less so I was like no no no. let me explain to you how we do this and <laughs> like and,
1: and, then we have to factor in warehousing yeah right yeah, now yeah. our warehouse is my house
2: right, <laughs> right. <now>. uh <laughs> so it's been funny having conversations with like industry professionals who think we're out of our minds and like after 10 minutes they get it, but it, it takes a conversation to like explain, like, no, 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 this is what we're doing. So they start
0: off judging you sort of as a hobbyist almost and taking it from yeah, there. Yeah. 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 It's interesting that the pandemic was such a big part of your formation because you can almost see the pandemic in your game design. So initially, hmm. uh, especially with the first three games, you were limited to a thousand copies. They were. Relative... 500. Our first,
2: 500, first 500 for to-
0: Science and Science. Science. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, And they were minimal components. Mm-hmm. The art was a very stylistic, but almost stark look to them mm-hmm. for the most part. I quite like it, but it's mm-hmm. not everybody's cup of tea, I have to admit. Yeah. Sure. I, and then as you've sort of opened up, you've, for instance, uh, Union Station, I think, was the first one you did a second print run for, uh, or a larger print So run. it was...
2: Yeah, uh, we the, we hit that 500 mark in like the On day first one. day yeah. which yeah. was nuts and and there was clearly more demand and so I talked to Tony I was like cuz the 500 copies was really like what can Tony handle. Right. And mm-hmm. like so we had to have a conversation we're like Tony can you manage 1000 copies? That's that's a lot. And then we were like, "Well, what if we stage it and we like the second 500 are promised for later to give Tony some breathing room." But we did them all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, But we did raise it to that to that limit. And that was really like that was just a combination of like Tony and I have a bit of a following and then Travis brought his own people essentially.
1: Uh-huh. And uh, there were a lot of people who were very aware of Union Station before because Travis right. had actually put print and plays up on Board Game Geek and there were people already playing the game yeah. before you know the Kickstarter ever came. So it wasn't just Travis playtesting with people at conventions prior to the pandemic.
2: Yeah, like it, it already had a, a bit of a fan base. That's interesting because I had so, never
0: heard of it. I came into it solely from you guys. I was part of that mm-hmm. part that came from your previous three Kickstarters. Love them all. So moving on. And then now you've moved on to, I won't say bigger, but a different sort of publishing. So you've, you've cooperated with Spielworks on London Necropolis Uh is that, but that's still a new mill industries publication,
2: right? It it is a co-publication. Yeah. So I was, um, Tony had a much smaller role in it because all the fulfillment and everything was being done by Spielworks. So, um i was kind of a co-art director I, you know we we worked with an illustrator that that spielworks usually uses and the graphic design and stuff so i was very involved in that but then spielworks covered their production costs they covered the fulfillment arrangements uh he was the one who kind of figured out how we should sell mm-hmm. it so a lot of that logistic stuff was was what they covered but then it was my design and I, you know, I worked with the with the illustrator uh and graphic designer and, and was involved with the rulebook. I, I laid out the rule book. Um so it was yeah, it was definitely like a it was a co publication um with Spielworks because it's a much larger game that we wouldn't have been able to do ourselves. Right. It would have had to cost mm-hmm. like hundred and twenty dollars or something if we did it mm-hmm. the way we did it and with no custom parts, like it would have been very different. Mm-hmm. With Spielworks, it looks like a Spielworks right. game. And it, it feels more complete than what we're we're normally able to do with our like prototype plus graphic design. Because I'm doing it all myself typically. Mm-hmm. Um, Portents is also a little different because uh, the designer Christopher Chan is also an art director. Mm-hmm. So we gave him a larger cut than we normally would, and he did all of the graphic design and all the the art stuff. We basically was like, <laughs> just give us your files when you're done, and we'll yeah. we'll take care of it.
1: Yeah, and this was both a uh, both a um, benefit to him—not just the larger cut of the profits, but also he like, had full control he, of. Yeah, how he it got worked. to yeah. put his vision out there into the world as this is what I wanted to create, um, and that was a really cool thing to be able to offer someone. Yeah, um, you know, managing the logistics side and the Kickstarter side—that a lot of the. Um, a lot of designers are scared to take that jump into rightfully so it is a lot of work yeah. um you know and i you know i'm going to be fulfilling that out of my house like yeah. every single new mill game that is shipped that wasn't london acropolis railway right. was packed in my office <laughs> um you know yeah. it was assembled in my office
2: cuz we will do it from different vendors like science and Sand society we ordered the dice from Chessex. we ordered the the what was it the player screen from print and play. We ordered the discs from print and play. Like, the boxes from another company. And everything gets to Tony's house, and he has to unpack it all and put the things in the baggies and put them in the box and, like...
1: Assemble every copy, and then once everything's assembled, it then goes to now I'm sitting in front of the USPS website or pirate ship and, you know, printing off all the labels and putting them all in boxes and carting them to my post office and... You know, like all of that was done, you know, manually, and it's a lot of labor. Yeah. Um. You know, like the, even even with the uh, even with the fact that all of our games have broken even, like they've all paid for their own production. Yeah.
2: There's only you one, know. only one game we haven't made a little bit of money on. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but the
2: like, six that we've done.
1: Yeah. yeah. But all of them have at least paid for themselves.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. And
1: and you know that yeah it's a very uh, time consuming endeavor but if it's not costing me anything other than time and i enjoy doing it then uh, did i really lose anything in the process is kind of how i've yeah, been
2: approaching yeah. it if you were just so, i like i know. like to say we make like used car money on it on <laughs> new that's kind of mm-hmm. that's our goal mm-hmm. keeps us going at conventions keeps me in board games
1: yeah. Keeps me relevant in the conversation. Like I get yeah. to keep talking to people. Not like you have to keep producing things to be part of the community, but it's really easy, especially during the pandemic for mm. to you to lose. Kind of con- and, yeah. yeah. you to lose connection yeah. to the community. You know, I used to go to a convention every quarter. And I was seeing the same people at these conventions and hanging out with them, and I was aware of, you know, all of the major goings on in their life, all their designs, like what was going on with their kids and all of that stuff. And then, like, that was just all gone suddenly. So having something to stay tethered has been
0: really, really valuable. You mentioned earlier that you do it almost like a print-on-demand. I, I often thought your company is similar to Hollenspiel in the way that they mm-hmm. operate to a certain extent. Can you see yourself getting to a point where you want to have a website like that, where people can order copies of the games even after they've you've gone through your initial print run? Or is are you going to stick to the, we're done with this game, we don't, that's it, it's done? Or,
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's really, that, that's the model we set up and... and where it stands, that's kind of the easiest way for us to do it. Um, Hollenspiel does do it. Like they do it print on demand. Yes. Yeah. Like you go to the website, you order it, they make it there. Like we will do a small run at a minimum. It, it would be very hard for us to, once we run out of copies to do another right. one um, without buying another 300 copies um, because there are minimum, even, even though it's print on demand, like we could do it, but it would cost 60 bucks. For one mm-hmm. copy, or or you know, not quite that much, but it, we would make na- we would make nothing on.
0: Yeah, there's uh, definitely an improvement in component quality, for instance, in your production over Hall and Spiel, because they are really just fair. running it off big photocopiers
2: for the most part. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, right. And they're and that's totally cool. And I love that they're doing it that way. And yeah, they're I one love of their... the companies. There were a couple of companies we were looking at when we were talking about putting this together, and they were one of them, uh, Spielworks, who only does one thousand copies, and that's yep. it for all Button our games. Shy. Button Shy. um, With all their
1: hand assembly of everything. Like, they, you know, literally stuff cards into wallets. Yeah, he gets his kids to help him (laughs) put his games together. I'm just saying, like, that's, you know, that kind of DIY aesthetic, all of those different, you know, and then, like, all those different, or at the time, um, Grant Rodiak was Mm -hmm. doing games where he would put up a game on Kickstarter and then uh you know, hand fulfill it and then he's yeah, like,
2: I'm gonna make two hundred copies of this. Who wants it?
1: Yeah, you know? and you know, almost all of them later on signed with publishing companies and mm-hmm. got full releases. I mean that's how Fort started. Right. Yep. You know, like it was it was initially one of his Kickstarters. So like there's a lot of people who've played in this space. And so there were actually a lot of different models for us to borrow from, which was, you know, really useful. And as designers were very used to borrowing. From other people in the space, so... Um, You know, it was cool. We've had to pioneer some stuff ourselves or figure things out ourselves, but it's cool that there are other people operating in the same space so that we have other people to bounce ideas off of or ask questions of or just in general uses inspiration. Like, they did this, so let's do it too is a kind of cool thing. And Hollenspiel is fantastic. I love what they do, um, and I love their business model, and I love that they can do quirkier, stranger games that maybe aren't – you know, something that could land on store shelves, you know. Uh, I love that opportunity. I love games with weirder themes. And being a smaller publisher opens you up to be able to do that because you're not looking to sell a million copies at Walmart.
2: I actually did a big trade uh, when Union Station came out because uh, Hollinsfield actually put out another of Travis's train games like at the same time as Union Station. So we did like a three or four copy game trade like I, I, sent them a bunch of New Mill stuff, and then they sent me a bunch of Train games, and that was that was pretty awesome. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, so I support all the other, uh, all the other punk rock people out there doing their thing, for sure. Um, especially when they can uh, produce some really cool stuff.
0: So. How do you decide which of your games you're going to publish yourself, which are you going to send out to publishers, which are you going to try to shop around to someone like Spielworks to do sort of a co-publication deal? Is it just a the- feeling, or do you have a way to figure this out?
2: A lot of it is size, okay. right? Mm-hmm. Like, New Mill is, we really stick to this, uh, this box that fits in a USPS small right. mailer, Right. It doesn't matter how much it weighs, doesn't matter what's in the box, as long as it can fit in that that container. Um, so they've got to be small. They've got to be something that I can do the graphic design for. Um, I'm not a super talented graphic designer. I have like middling skills. I can I make a very nice looking prototype mm-hmm. and I can go a little beyond that if I really push. Like I was really happy with how Union Station turned out, but mm-hmm. it's still fairly stark right, compared to, to other games. Um, oh.
1: With a train game, that's not too
0: uncommon, though. We
2: could get away with it with a train game, for sure. And Uh, I would again,
0: I would say that's a style choice as opposed to a limitation mm -hmm. necessarily. Yeah, yeah. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Yes, let's go with that. (laughs) Um, But so that's that's the major consideration: is like, will it fit in the box? Can I do the graphic design? Okay, right. And there have been a couple of games that we looked at, and we ultimately were like. Uh, I don't think I can actually pull this off. This is going to require too many portraits, or I'm not sure how we would do that without paying for art, which we can't afford to do. Like, it's just because we have no margins. uh, There's just no room for it. Um, So that's the biggest thing. Um, There was actually a game that I was planning to do. I was working on a trick-taking game that I was planning to have as a new mill release for next year. And I was talking to a publisher friend about it. And he was like, well, let me play it. And he played it and he's like, I want to sign this. Mm -hmm. So that went from, I assumed, a new mill to now it's going to be with a publisher. Right. Mm -hmm. It just kind of happens. We tend to get a better deal if we can get a publisher. Sure. A new mill has always been like kind of, well, we've got this alternate path if we have something that we want to we want to
1: do with it right and one of the things that like for other designers um that we've done like obviously we control the destinies of all of our own designs that's just you know fait accompli in that case but like with other designers who've let us do their games like part of the contract is that you know we do this The only thing we ask is that we be allowed to continue selling any of the copies that we did print after, you know, the case, uh, after the circumstance is over. Otherwise, you know, feel free to use the copy that we made for you to pitch to publishers. We want you to get that game signed like we wouldn't have published if we didn't believe in it you know so now they have this viable product and uh, they can literally point to this many people backed this game on kickstarter and wanted a copy
2: of it and that's uh, with no marketing yeah, yeah. no right. marketing like, whatsoever it's it's uh, we do such small runs that it's not like we've uh, we've eliminated the pool yeah. of potential interest right um it's just kind of like a test you're like dipping your toe in we also in our agreements um say that either party can back out up to 3 months before their prospective date. Like we tell designers like keep pitching it if you want to pitch it. Like get a better deal. Like if you can find somebody who wants to do 5000 copies of it and wants do to put in target like by all means. We we just want this game to be made. We're excited about this game. Like we don't have to do it if you find a better deal. Um that hasn't happened yet. Uh, <laughs> but
1: but it's something that is kind of built potential. into And we'd be fine something. with it. Yeah, it's something that's built into our business model. I wouldn't at all be upset. I would actually be lining up to get a copy of that game. Absolutely. Um, You know, I wouldn't do a game that I didn't want. So it's, um, you know, trying to be in that position where everybody wins. That's what we want. And by staying smaller, um, we have that opportunity, um, which a larger publisher doesn't in a lot of regards. You know, if I've printed 10,000 copies of a game, I'm selling these 10,000 copies. And, you know, it isn't until the market has, you know, dried up for that game that anybody's going to be looking to pick it up again. Or, you know, people on Board Game Geek are demanding a reprint, you know. Right. Like, I haven't been able to get this game for 10 years. <laughs> Can we please get Ginkopolis back in print? You know, just to give an example. And, um, and,
2: I, just today, I saw somebody selling a copy of Ginkopolis for 30 bucks on,
0: mm-hmm.
2: on like, the flea market. Just mm-hmm. like... It was selling for $100 like three years yeah. ago. Yeah. Yep. And now they're like, eh, I'm over Genghis
0: Well, I could have sold my but Russian yeah, Railroads. I could have sold a, a number of games for way more than they're yeah. worth now. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah there's, and, and that's always kind of going to be a thing as things come around, but we don't eat up the
0: market. So, so you talked about yeah. the market a few times. There's a lot of talk that the market is super saturated at this point, that there are too many games being released. Are you feeling that when you're publishing your games? Is it getting worse? Is it getting better? Or are you just outside that market entirely so it doesn't bother you?
2: I, I think we're outside it, man. Mm-hmm. Like I like to say that while everybody else is yelling over each other, we're just whispering. <laughs> so like you have to kind of strain to hear us. But if you do, like we're saying something interesting. Yeah. Like, people like that we're doing this weird thing, and they're willing to pay a little extra for what would normally be a, a slightly less expensive game because they know that it's limited. They know we're doing it by hand, and we're doing these weird, you know, this this kind of oddball method of production. Um, and it just feels like a special thing that they're kind of joining in mm-hmm. on. Um, and, like, uh, you're a, a prime example of, of our, our base, kind of, is that, like you're into what we're doing and you're going to buy the next one because like we're doing a cool thing and like and you haven't let me down yet i've enjoyed every game you put out that's that's fantastic that's that's
1: that in and of itself is uh the best thing i could possibly hear um that's our goal like we only try to do games that we would like as gamers and you know being able to get them out into the market like Part of it is giving the games a chance. Mm -hmm. Like, we're both very big fans of weird themes and weird mechanisms and different ideas. And, you know, some of our games are a little bit weirder than others. You know, Science and Seance is an asymmetric two-player game. Portents is a, like, puzzly match three game. Mm -hmm. Reapers is a trick-taking game, but you draft your whole hand of cards at the beginning. Like, Mm -hmm. and those are all just, like, different different things than what the market has offered. Like, I think we're offering a unique thing in a unique way. And that speaks to some people. And that's the only audience I need. Like, you know, I don't, I don't, I need to know that the things that I'm creating are being enjoyed somewhere. That's what matters to me most. And while it's really cool to have something like Kabuto Sumo that we couldn't possibly manufacture, you know, know, like that's that's not something that we could have even dreamed of manufacturing ourselves. Like, it's cool to have something like that with my name on it and to watch people all over the world playing it and to see like Japanese versions of the game and everything like that. Absolute mind trip cool thing to have as a designer but it's also cool to be able to offer this other side of the house of like you know here are b-sides yeah you know here here are all these other designers designing cool stuff that you may never get to see otherwise um, and if we can give them a spotlight and you know they can end up with that game being picked up and you know being published in Japanese and being enjoyed all over the world, more power to them. I would love that for all of our designers. They've all been fantastic to work with and they've yeah. all designed some pretty incredible games. So
0: Excellent. I'm curious how much of an influence you have over each other's design. So take Science and Seance, for instance. The first time I played it, I thought, this is kind of an Android Netrunner game. And Tony, you said right at the beginning, Android Netrunner is one of your Mm -hmm. favorite all time games. So like, Mm -hmm. was this something that Daniel, did you come up with this on your own or was this an influence thing?
2: (laughs) No, I, I designed that game way before I met Tony. That's actually Mm -hmm. one of my, one of my earlier, earlier designs that I was kicking around for years. You know, I'd, I'd play with it for a while and I hit a wall and I'd put it away and then I'd bring it out a little while later. and, And, um, yeah so the fact that you bring up netrunner that i think i i played netrunner like once or twice but i think after i'd already started working on this game um that's interesting yeah no, i don't and, think there's, there's oh. not a ton of cross-pollination i think with what you and i are doing tony right
1: no no not really um and that's one of the reasons why i love science and seance is because because i like netrunner <laughs> i like asymmetric right. two-player games sure um So, yeah, so it it just kind of was happenstance that way. Like, Rivet Heads was a design that I had, like, it was the first design I had created and actually brought to a game night to ask other Uh, people to play. Um, And uh, my co-designer for Fire in the Library, John, it was the first of my designs that he ever played. Like, he was coming to the same game night as I was when I was living near Cincinnati, and... Um, you know, he played that game and then we started talking and then eventually fire in the library came from that, you know, conversation. But like rivet heads was spawned out of that design, uh, before I'd even met Daniel at a convention. Cause
2: I think that might've been the first game of yours that I played at like, or it was in like 2015 abso- or something.
1: Yep, it absolutely was when I was there pitching elements, which hasn't yeah. gone anywhere. There's <laughs> right. another game that we could potentially take a look at going yeah. forward. Like there's... Any designer who's designing is going to have an entire shelf of things that they've come up with that, you know, didn't work for one reason or another. And, um, you know, some of those are good enough and have been pitched enough that people are like, like with Fire in the Library, like it was picked up by Carla. I had just pitched to everybody that I could think of, like a whole weekend of pitching yep. And every person that I talked to was like, this is a really cool game, but it's not for me. Or this is a really cool game, but I already have a pressure luck game. Or this is a really cool game, but we don't have room in our schedule. Or this is a really cool game, but it doesn't really fit our player base. And like all the, but it doesn't really was just soul crushing. And I'm like sitting there at a table with Carla and I'm like, I believe in this game. I think this game is good. You know, I just don't have the means to get it out there myself. And, you know, she was like, well, I do. And like that's how this stuff happens in this yeah. industry.
2: And honestly, Tony, Fire in the Library would have been a great new mill game. It would have. I mean, that would have totally not... fit if yeah. you had just held out. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, held out for two whole years.
0: Yeah. Um, made a little less more money, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> a, a lot less money. Let's
2: be a honest, lot A lot yes. less money.
1: But no, it's um. But yeah, it is. It is what it is. Like, there's a lot of those kinds of things that designers have. Like, I can sit here right now and think of three or four of my design friends who have a shelf mm-hmm. of designs that we could potentially.
2: Uh, yeah, we have a we have a list that we keep of like when we're ready to kind of think about the next. We don't want to go too far mm-hmm. out just because yeah. we're only we only do like two or three games a year. We don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. So especially because Tony's uh, office is that of, big. Yeah. yeah, that's right. We'll <laughs> fill it up.
1: Well, that's part of it, yes. Um, you know, well, I just don't know.
2: One of us might just get tired of doing it. You know, it's like eventually. Fair enough. So I, you know, or, or I don't want to make promises too far. I don't want to like if we're doing other people's games. I don't want to say like, oh yeah, in three years we'll do this game. Like, who knows what's going to happen in three years? <laughs> and
1: and in three years, like, man, that's a long time to wait to see just the Kickstarter and your yeah. game. Yeah. So all of that.
2: I just I don't like really thinking more than like a year out. No. Um, yeah for that reason. It's, so you have sort of this, if not
0: maybe not an official list, but an idea in your head of the games that you're considering. Would you be open to things like yeah. submissions and that sort of thing, or are you not really interested in that?
2: I've had a couple people approach me about submissions, and generally I say I, I'm not interested in looking at stuff, um, partly because I only really want to work with people we know fairly mm-hmm. well, um, because we do things so loosely. Like, we don't have a legal contract. It's like... I, we wrote up an agreement that's really just a handshake plus right. kind of situation. So I'm very reluctant to to like bring in people who aren't super familiar with Tony and I and like how we mm-hmm. how we do things. Um, we do we, we did kind of sign a game with someone who I had been talking to on Twitter for a while. Um, I've met him actually for the first time in person at, at Essen last mm-hmm. month. Um, and I just I make sure he, they totally understand like I lay I have a spiel that actually I've, I've written out as copy and paste into my twitter dn um this like this is how we do it this is what you can expect you know just like as long as you're okay with all of this then we can keep talking right. because like we don't do it how normally how normal publishers do and I don't want there to be any wrong expectations um yeah so so generally no I I don't I wouldn't say we're open to submissions. However, if Tony or I see something and we're like, this game is really cool, we'll consider it, right? Mm-hmm. But it has to be something that we're excited sure. about yeah. from seeing ourselves. Um, and like,
1: it, it also has to be something that can fit our business model. There are a absolutely. lot of things that I see that like set me on fire, but that couldn't fit couldn't in one of it. our yeah. boxes. Yeah. Well,
2: right. like, Portents was a game. Uh, Chris was in my playtest group before the pandemic ended uh before the pandemic started before the pandemic ended everything <laughs> is what i was trying to say um and every time he brought it i got excited to play it and i was just like oh oh yeah you brought this it was called syzygy at the time it was an astronomy theme but it was like i was so excited every time he brought it out and then when we started doing new mills like i approached him about it and i was like hey if you decide you want to like we'll do this like i'm excited to do this game if you want i think you should keep shopping it around Keep working on it, and whatever. Like, if you can find a better deal, absolutely do that. But like, I want to. I want this game to be made. So if you're willing to talk about it, like, you know, let's talk about it. Um, Union Station was another one where like, I was just helping Travis playtest. I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I was like, "What are you doing with? Is anybody publishing this?" He's like, "No." I was like, "Can I?" He's like, "Sure." <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, and I've been and Travis. Travis, was,
1: yeah, and Travis was doing a rule book editing for right. us.
2: Right. Yeah. He, so he like, edited we had a couple of rule books.
1: You know, so we had a relationship with him. He knew what we were up to. So, yeah. like, when Daniel made that overture, Travis knew exactly what he was getting into. There wasn't right. anything hidden about it. And, um, like, that was a fantastic uh, experience, working with him directly on that. And uh, same thing with uh, with Chris. And, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's been great. Um, and there's been some that we've, like, really wanted to do that we've found out we can't do. Um, yeah, we had one that,
2: that heartbreaking. was... Mm-hmm. That we had one that we were really excited about that we were going to do last summer, uh, but it needed transparent cards. And mm-hmm. when I first offered, I did a little research and I was like, "Oh, I think I found a place that we can do it." And then I kind of put it in the back of my mind. And then when we had to actually like buckle down and figure out how to get it made, I realized it wasn't it wasn't going to work. We couldn't really do it. Um, they didn't want to give us samples. We couldn't get a card sample like they wouldn't even just send us a card. Right. And if they can't do so that. Like how even like supposed to order, any card. How am I supposed like, to order 300 or 400 copies of this if I don't know what it's going to look like? Yeah. And we tried a couple other options it was like I just don't I don't think we can do it. And I the one place there was another place I found that maybe but it was way too expensive and it was just yeah. So that that was tough having to go back to them and be like, yeah, I don't think we can actually make it. They totally understood. There were no hard feelings like yeah. it was fine, but uh and I, it was about
1: yeah, and I still want to. I still want
0: that game to be made. Absolutely, uh, it's awesome. We just need
2: somebody um, with a little bit more but, of a
0: manufacturing
2: background that can do it. Yeah, it was just outside of our capabilities with with the with the constraints that we've given ourselves. Right, mm-hmm. the model that we're working with
0: So, Portance, uh, I would say, has the fanciest components you've done yet. <laughs> uh, Rivet Heads is the I think the highest player count other than Reapers, which is a,
2: a very Reapers small. goes to five. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Three to five. Union Station goes to five. Rivet Heads is four. Union Station is five. I've never played it with that
0: many. I might have to try that Mm -hmm. at some point. Yeah, I think it goes to five. Uh, yeah.
1: Is this where we lament that we didn't put player counts on our boxes? (laughs) Yeah, you
2: can't just
0: pick it up and look. Sorry, (laughs) that's
2: an inside joke. There's, yeah, there's a running joke with, um, fellow designer, Matt Wolf, who gives us, it gives us a hard time because we don't put the player count. And then now I do it. I don't do it on purpose because I know it annoys Matt. Although Portents does have it on it. Uh, Because
1: Christopher put it (laughs) on it. He did his (laughs) own artwork, right?
2: Yeah, an art design. Yes. But the Necropolis also has the player count on it. Yes. So that's, that's been broken. We got to start being good.
0: (laughs) So what's the next big improvement you'd like to see happen with your games? What, what would you like to experiment with next to see? Uh,
2: well, I feel like every game there's something yeah. new. Like, um, Portents, I'm actually going to laser cut all the pieces oh, myself. Really? Yeah. Because the model shop I work in has three laser yeah. cutters. And I talked to my boss, and I was like, if I buy the material, can I come in, like, off hours and just cut it all? Because I looked into it, and it's way cheaper than ordering yeah. the Than even ordering wood. Oh, well, wood. Up to this point. We were going to use wood, except the place we normally order it from ha- says like, you can only order 200 of each piece now because of supply chain right. issues. And I was like, well, that screws us because we need more than that. Um, so I was like, we'll look into, looked into acrylic uh, and, the, and actually custom cutting the acrylic actually makes some of the pieces move a little easier. Mm-hmm. Instead of like the wood square tiles, you can round the corners yeah. on the acrylic and then you've got a little more room to, to slide things around. Um, So, yeah, so once we get our Kickstarter money, I have to buy all the acrylic and take it to work and start laser cutting. Um, So that's a new thing for us. I feel like every game there's a new challenge, right? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, sourcing, you know, the first game we had dice and cloth bags and player Mm -hmm. screens. And then the the second game was, how many cards can we theoretically stick (laughs) in a box this size? And all that Uh, stickering. Yeah, so much stickering. So we stickered both sides into the discs. Oh, the stickering of Rivet Heads was a process. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was it was a whole uh, a whole month of my life. So there's gonna be
2: a lot of stickering with this too. Yep. Which yep. I have to decide whether I'm gonna do the stickering this time or not because I'm cutting all the pieces. It might make sense to have the stickers sent to me and I'll just sticker them before I I can send Tony sets. Or I'll just be lazy and be like, here's a box of loose plastic. Good
1: luck, <laughs> uh, and we'll see what we'll see what happens. We yeah. both like stickering pieces.
2: It's, it's true, but I don't know
1: how much Daniel likes stickering pieces. I
2: do love stickering. I once joked about with a, somebody on Twitter about how we were gonna set up like a bi-coastal stickering mm-hmm. operation, where mm-hmm. like somebody could send their games to us, depending on who they were closer to, and we'd sticker and then send back. Um, so I had do, a few. I, I would have it. taken
0: advantage of that service. I, yeah.
2: You wouldn't be alone, 18XX yeah, ones would especially. Yeah.
1: We have we have discovered that I so far do not have an upper threshold to where <laughs> stickering becomes not fun. Um, so,
2: so and in, in terms, if we go back to like the challenges, like Union Station, there were what 85 discs per game. Yes, and we had a thousand copies
1: printed. Yep, and we had so, to count each set of discs out by okay. hand. We didn't sticker those because there but... were
2: six colors. Yep, yep. Eleven discs of each color, except gray, which needed like thirteen.
1: It had two extra discs.
2: I don't know. I'm trying to like remember. Fifteen or I don't know. Yeah, but it was just like bags. And bags of disks. That's why we write
1: discs. it in the rule book. But yeah, exactly. It was, it was it was bags of discs. Like I've never seen that many wooden components in one place. And we
2: could not get them from the the source we normally did there's such a massive quantity that they actually had to talk to their factory we had to sign an nda that said we wouldn't reveal the factory name because they were shipping them directly to tony so like mm-hmm. there was this whole other thing like how are we going to get all these discs we didn't expect it to have to you know be doing that that quantity so yeah every game has its own challenges which is it's been fun excellent
0: yeah all right Anything you want to add just before we continue? Just anything left to say about New Mill Industries or about your production philosophy that you want to just throw out there?
2: I think the most exciting thing that that I'm starting to talk about is um, breaking into the Japanese Mm -hmm. market or -hmm. the Asian market. Um, We had somebody bring copies of Reapers to the Tokyo Game Market last weekend. Um, It's somebody who works uh, Big Cat Games, brings games over from Asia and sells them in the United States because it's hard to get them otherwise. And um, the woman who, who who does it was like, I want to bring some games from the US that might do well there. And I reached out, I was like, would you want to bring Reapers? And we happened to have a bunch of copies uh, left over from our from the Kickstarter. So she took 30 over, split it into two groups, it's two days, and they sold out. Those 15 copies each day sold out in five minutes. We're like, whoa, maybe there's, maybe there's a market. Over there. So now I'm, I'm starting to talk to some Japanese publishers. I had a conversation with a um, a licensing agent today, uh, who looks at getting into mm-hmm. other markets. So trying to f- see if there's potential for new mill partners in other in other places um, for some of our little games. And
1: business. the whole and the whole spirit of Tokyo game market, where people literally uh, bring
2: handmade yeah, prototypes, yeah. is
1: exactly up yeah. our alley.
2: So um, that's that's kind. Of, I'm hoping to kind of like wedge into that and see if, if there's a space for us there with that, and try to find some partners that we can get some of these games into to, into like, yeah, the Japanese game yeah, scene. Yeah, as soon as you said That's that, kind of it just made next.
0: perfect sense, because Absolutely. they have that synergy yeah. already, mm-hmm. that idea of just a sh- small print run, and it's done. They don't go back yep. to it. And
2: and the sparse and graphic design, yeah. and like all of games that. Games are
1: like... tiny. Yeah, our games are tiny. Yep. You yep. know what si- the size is you're getting into with it, and yeah, it, it it's... Um, a very similar idea and a very similar aesthetic and I mean it kind of makes sense we're both really into that sort of stuff as yeah. well mm-hmm. so you know there's probably some subconscious copying going <laughs> on there as well from, you know what we wanted to do we both love trick taking games and Reapers yep. is our trick taking game so you know it's um, so
0: that's, the, that's a, the next
2: big thing for us is, is you know I'm starting to, to kind of try to make some inroads into that to that market um and
0: we'll see what happens that's really cool yeah all right guys we got to move on so we're gonna go to our top three we always finish our show with a top three what i would like you to do is just in unison i guess just give me your best top three top three that's perfect (laughs) all right so we're here for our top three uh I'm going to actually sit out of this top three. This is kind of easy for me. I've got it easy today. Uh, so We're going to do the top three best things about running your own publishing company. And since I don't have a publishing company, I can't really contribute. So that's great. So uh, let's start with number three. Uh, Daniel, why don't you go first since Tony went first earlier? Uh,
2: so I think the number three for me is is the uh, the amount of control we have in how our games look you know, if it's our own, if our own games, um, being able to just to control the art direction and, and, um, look of it and, and, you know, all of those, all of those things I know both of us have had games where we've had published before, where decisions were made by the publisher that we didn't necessarily agree with. And we had to kind of just swallow right. it and, you know, let it happen. <laughs> uh, so being able to, to like completely control the, the feel and the look of the game is is uh that's what i would say is the third best thing about.
0: <laughs> Tony running around. What's your number 3?
2: Um
1: well, i was going to flippantly say being allowed to sticker as many things <laughs> as i possibly could, but to to kind of extrapolate on that, like to take that to a little bit higher level, um there's something deeply meditative about being the person who manages that aspect of things like the physical tactile element of getting everything into the bags and putting everything into the boxes and double checking my work and making sure that like I personally have verified that what I'm sending to someone is what I want them to get um it's really uh it kind of ties in with Daniel's in a degree the level of control we have like if somebody didn't get their stuff that's on me I didn't Mm -hmm. do it right you know or what we received from the factory wasn't right and it wasn't checked to the degree that it would be but like one of our guarantees is that we'll make it right Mm -hmm. and I get the ability to do that personally like if there's something wrong I get to personally take responsibility and address that um and you know for some people that might be scary but for me it it's reassuring to know that i'm the one who's in control of that like i'm not reliant on somebody somewhere that i can't see or never even talk to to fulfill
0: our promise to our
1: customers
0: it's in my hands and that's pretty cool and you you'd see that with a lot of kickstarters where people are complaining and they're like well we're talking to them there's nothing else we can do
2: yeah right yeah Mm mm-hmm all right,
0: number two, Daniel.
2: Um, for me, it's the ability to get weird games made that wouldn't <laughs> otherwise get made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like the whole reason <laughs> we do it.
0: Whether it's yours or someone else's, just a game that you want. Yeah, exactly. To see. Yeah. yeah, I love it. All
1: right, yeah. Tony. Yeah, odd, odd, oddly enough, that's my number two as well. Is <laughs> yes, um, having All known right. what this would be like? Things that are different. I want to see more differentiation in the marketplace. Like, I love the painterly art style that is really popular now. You know, I love games with lots of color. I love all of the intricate bits and custom cut meeples and super fancy things. Like, I'm not going to say that I don't love all of that stuff, but I don't want that to be the only thing there is. Like, if the only games on the market are the big budget Hasbro games lining the shelves of targets and the multi. Multi-million-dollar miniature-filled Kickstarter mm-hmm. campaigns. Like, there's so much more space in the world, and there's so much more space to create in. And uh, I want to see more of that. So, you know, to be able to bring some of it into the world, or to help bring it into the world, um, is a really a big treat for me personally.
2: Excellent. All right. I guess we're at number one. Number one. Number one. Yay! Number, number one. one. So for number one. I said uh, making new connections in the industry. Being able to like talk to people that you wouldn't otherwise have to talk to or get to talk to or, you know, just like it just opens up more opportunities for, for you know, connecting with folks. I'm just going to let my industry. ego put me in the, the industry category. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not naming names. Uh, <laughs> but no, like it just, it opens things up no. even more, right? Like you just get to know the industry better
0: and i get that entirely that's a lot of the reason why i started this pan- this podcast during the pandemic was sure. i just was out of touch i wanted to have that yeah. contact mm-hmm. so yeah i get it yeah that's cool i like that a lot tony what's your number 1 yep
1: and this is how simpatico we are (laughs) um is that mine is very very similar like the best thing about running my own publishing company is the opportunity to continue connecting with people in the industry whether it's being on podcasts like this one and getting to talk to people or um getting to see people around the world with a copy of a game that i had a hand in on their table like Every, it, it's different, like, seeing Kabuto Sumo on someone's table is incredible, because I know that that wouldn't exist in the world without right. me. Seeing a new mill game on someone's table, I handled those components. You, you touched like. It. I literally counted the pieces that are in that box. Um, so there's like a part of me in every single one of them. That's you out there. You even linked
2: one of the discs. <laughs> but nobody if, knows which one. Yes, just one. Just so one. Maybe
1: it. Maybe may your copy. It yeah, may you may have Tony's no. DNA
0: um, somewhere in your collection. That's right. <laughs> I
1: try not to get any of my hair in there. For those who don't know, I'm a very hirsute hers- person. And uh, I try to make sure that there's none of me actually in the box. But my, <laughs> Literally my, none my, of you. Yes, no heart, guarantees, though. My heart, at a minimum, is in the box. Um, and much like you know, the podcast that I was on for several years, like it's a way of contributing back to an industry that has given me a lot. Um, It's given me connections. It's given me friends. It's given me colleagues. It's given me um, confidence in myself. It's given me space to create in. It's given me just so many amazing things that otherwise wouldn't be a part of my life. And being able to give a little bit back and put stuff out there and help other designers and um, you know shine spotlights on weird little corners of the industry or show that one way of doing things isn't the only way like all of those things are the things that really turn me on about like running a publishing company is you know we can be a little different and if we're a little different maybe other people will choose to be a little different yeah. too.
0: Amazing, absolutely amazing, guys! You know I'm a huge fan. Thank you so much. This has been a huge treat for me. Uh, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that?
2: Twitter is the best way to find me. I kind of live there. Uh, <laughs> at DNLNWMN is uh, my handle. Excellent.
1: Yeah, I am also on Twitter. I am Bearded Rogue. Um, you can find me there. I am uh, potentially spreading out to other locations based on whether or not Twitter self-destructs. <laughs> but I am on—I am on Twitter. Um, that is, you know, pretty much twenty-four-seven, um, unless I'm unconscious. Uh, I am on Twitter. Um, we also have a company Twitter. It's at New Underbar Um, and that's where all of the announcements for whatever we're up to at the time will be, it's used much more officially to announce actual Kickstarters or, uh, Mm -hmm. signings or things of that nature. Um, whereas our personal accounts are obviously an eclectic mix of all of the stuff we're into, whether it's Japanese trick-taking games, in my case, professional wrestling, or you can see the amazing models that Daniel builds on his.
2: Yeah, I like to. I post a lot of pictures of prototype stuff I'm working on, which which lately has included a lot of three uh, D printed stuff. Excellent. Um, but... All right, guys. Yep. We would like to
0: end with a song. Do you guys have a song that you would like to suggest? Or...
2: Oh man! <laughs> I should have prepped. This is the one thing I didn't prep for.
1: Yeah, I didn't prep for it either.
2: You know what I had in my head earlier was Little Green Bag. Okay. <laughs> you know that. Yeah. Which kind of feels like it, it could be relevant, oh. right? We haven't had a little green bag in any of our games yet, but I can All right, see it. so
0: that's that's the sneak peek to the next publication. There will be a little green bag in it somewhere. <laughs> no,
2: no promises, but maybe we'll work that in. All
0: right, guys, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, have you, a Bruce, great night. A lot thank fun. you. Yes. All
2: right, have a good you one. You too.
0: This has been another episode of Definitely a Board Game Podcast, a podcast definitely about board games, except when it isn't. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can find us at Gmail at definitely at gmail.com on Twitter as at board definitely, on Facebook at definitely Bored. and you can find our show anywhere where podcasts live. And to finish off our show, here we go, George Baker, Little Green Bag. <music>